to two groups in this country, patriots and traitors. No middle ground. Disinformation is not simply lies or falsifications. It is the art of having your enemies say what you want them to say. Who would engage in espionage on Twitter? Who would be that stupid? Not me. It's very important to educate people about these techniques. They have the Great Reset, we have the Great Awakening. Another type of active measure is the agent of influence. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. You know, it's very hard for journalists to accept that this has been going on. What do you get your opinions from? TV? Disinformation is actually a deliberately distorted or manipulated information that is uh, leaked into the communication system of the opponent with the expectation that it would be accepted as genuine information and uh, influence either the decision-making process, for example, or to influence or manipulate public opinion. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. Some questions remain unanswered. What is the effect of all these active measures? I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Teddy Wilson is a freelance journalist, researcher, and consultant. He previously worked as the U.S. investigations editor at Open Democracy and as a reporter for Rewire.News, Free Speech Radio News, and the American Independent News Network. His reporting has appeared in the Houston Chronicle, the Global Post, and Salon.com. Wilson served for eight years in the United States Navy, participating in both Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. He was ultimately deployed four times. These days, Wilson is the founder and publisher of Radical Reports, a newsletter that provides research, analysis, and intelligence on the radical right. You can find Radical Reports online by visiting radicalreports.substack.com. Teddy, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. So can you tell us about your time working in signals analysis in the Navy? We'd just like to know how that prepared you for the job you're doing researching the far right today. Right. So let's see. I joined the Navy straight out of high school, and this is back in 1999. And I had a few different choices as far as possible career paths in the military, but intelligence and specifically signals analysis seemed pretty interesting. And the schooling was in Florida. And so it seemed like a nice place to spend some time as a, you know, 19, 20 year old. So after boot camp, I went to my tech schools and Got to spend some time in some other really nice places, like I was stationed in Spain. Ooh. Um, I was stationed in Hawaii. In between those, I was stationed in Georgia and nice. worked at a couple uh, national security agency, NSA, a few of those facilities. Okay. I think, as you mentioned in the intro, I was deployed a few different times. And as far as the work went, it was both interesting, but also not as interesting as I think most people would assume. (laughs) But I will say as far as like how it prepared me and kind of what kind of skills I learned from being in military intelligence and in signals intelligence in particular for a career in journalism and doing kind of the investigations and research that I'm currently doing. I think the first skill it gave me was the ability to look at things in an analytical way and being able to identify what is pieces of a much larger puzzle. Right. right? Because as an investigative journalist, you're always trying to figure out kind of how does this piece of information or this piece of research or how does this source connect to the larger story or narrative that I'm trying to tell. And so I think that kind of skill built up over time was helpful. And then also the ability to kind of not to put a too fine a point on it, but to do monotonous tasks. <laughs> yeah. Almost to the point where actually I kind of enjoy kind of some of that aspect of what I do. In signalist intelligence, so much of, of what you do is 
you're constantly searching for new new signals and new ways to exploit whatever your target is. And then you spend so much time trying to do the work of decoding or classifying whatever you're collecting. And a lot of it can be a slow, tedious process. And that's the same with investigative journalism. You know, you spend so much of your time trying to figure out, okay, where am I going to be able to find this information? And then you spend the rest of your time searching for through various sources of information to find information that can either confirm or or disprove certain things if you're kind of following the facts of a story. Right, right. And so, you know, I can't tell you how many times when I was in signals intelligence that I thought I had figured out a signal and I thought I was going to break it out and turns out I missed something or there was a false positive or whatever and I had to start back from square one. (laughs) Same things happen all the time within investigative journalism when you think you might have a lead on something and you go searching down rabbit holes. And sometimes it leads nowhere. And I think the good investigative journalists know when to kind of accept that and be like, okay, there's nothing at the end of this path. So I need to look somewhere else. I think I've seen a tendency, particularly kind of within certain parts of the research community, to keep trying to pushing down certain rabbit holes because they're sure they'll find something there even though all the evidence might lead you to believe there's nothing there like you've got a narrative and you're going to make the facts fit the narrative somehow and you're going to keep digging until you find that thing that makes your your narrative work right and that's also to say that just because you can't find evidence of something doesn't mean that your thesis is necessarily incorrect right if you find evidence that right. can disprove it, that's something different. But if you can't find the evidence of whatever your thesis or your theory of the case is in wherever you're looking, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily wrong. It just means that right now you can't prove it. And right now you can't publish something right. at the moment that says what you what you think the larger story might be. So that's always challenging, I think, when when you are especially kind of where I've been recently in the last several years, looking into kind of far right groups and extremist groups is having thesis and theories about kind of how they're operating and having ideas about what they may be up to. But if you can't prove it and show kind of documented links or what have you, then you run the risk of just kind of running into wild speculation and kind of, actually espousing conspiracy theories right there's a right right. not to both sides it but it's funny (laughs) because i do see similarities on on the left too kind of the relentless focus on certain kind of the coke brothers yeah the coke brothers and kind of a few others and that's not not to say that like the coke brothers and aren't instrumental and kind of really influential within kind of right-wing politics but they're not the only thing. Same thing with like a few others, like uh, what is it? The Center for National Policy is that the name of the group? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, that's that's one of those things that everybody like tries to point back to. If you found one member, mm-hmm. and oh, this you know Bannon was a member and Bannon did this thing, so therefore it's all a CNP plan. And yeah, I get what you're saying. And it's like the the Koch brothers they give $25,000 to some organization, like that's a write-off for them. They don't even, but some people take that as like, they run the organization or something. Because there's a lot of people, really great people kind of within the research space that however they refer to themselves, OSNET researchers or, you know, amateur researchers, or just even if people on the left just kind of trying to understand this stuff. There's a lot of people that kind of do really great work. I mean, in addition to like kind of QAnon Anonymous, like there's a lot of other folks that I follow, I think, do a lot of work and kind of do the thing that we talked about, like following the facts, right? Right. You know, there's a, the right is really good at platforming kind of the worst people of the left, right? Like they always bring up, not that there's anything wrong with the people that are involved with the Revolutionary Communist Party in and of itself, right? (laughs) <laughs> that's a, if that's your fucking deal fine i don't have a 
But they always, you know, they'll bring on somebody from the Revolutionary Communist Party or the Green Party or some or whoever, you know, that's going to say something inflammatory and they can kind of paint the entire left with that brush and their audience eats it up. Oh, yeah. I mean, on the whole November 4th, 2017 thing, they didn't really have an Antifa to go yell at. So they lined up some old, you know, burnouts from the Revolutionary Communist Party, some RCP fools, and they had them out there playing Antifa to some big extent so they could turn around and run theirs because they just didn't have enough real anti-fascists to go after. To watch the right-wing media kind of weaponize Antifa as a cudgel for their audience. Right. It's simultaneously frustrating and also kind of impressive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They just, they kind of... Turn it into such a boogeyman. They memed it into existence. Yeah, it really is fascinating. I think it's a different level because with with Black Lives Matter, they did were able to kind of do the same thing for their audience. But with Black Lives Matter, like when they said things like they are funded by whoever, like Black Lives Matter, there's an actual organization, a nonprofit, Black Lives Matter, and there's like a lot of other groups, right? Right. So there's actually kind of a money trail, right? I mean, there's like some kind of. Mm-hmm. But with Antifa, it's not an organization. It's like a loose collective of anti-fascist people that work in a very kind of dispersed way, right? And there's no kind of central anything. Mm-mm. No, and the internal arguments are even funnier when these groups try to actually like organize around something. It's like, how many anarchists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, yeah, was the <laughs> other day, uh, DSA was trying to or debating whether or not they should expel AOC. And I was like, come on, guys, how, how self-defeating can you be? Yeah, she's a politician. And yeah, she's made it a few decisions you don't like. But really, you're going to you're going to kick out AOC. None of these people have ever dealt with like real anti-fascists or real, you know, anybody in those spaces in their lives. You can tell they just don't know. Yeah. From uh, yeah. they assume those groups work the way their groups work. So they've painted this sort of boogeyman that sort of looks like the reverse of what they do. And the cultures are completely different. So they have this idea that like, oh, there must be a leader around somewhere. They must have meetings. They must have organizations and titles. And it's like, no. But they can only see like the left is Stalin or Mao. Maybe we don't see it, but Obviously, that's that's who we it's are. Just because they're good at hiding it, yeah. Because just... they're really, really good at you know their opsec. And the media helps us, and the and the deep state, and yada yada. I mean, yeah. yeah so it reminds me. I can't remember his name. It's one of Elon's Twitter minion bros. Uh-huh. Tweeted these four men will like end Western wokeism or something. Okay. <laughs> and it was uh-uh. Kim Jong Il. It was Donald Trump. It was Xi Jinping yeah. and then Vladimir Putin. And I was like, really? Like, okay, bro. <laughs> okay. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The interesting thing, though, would always be to ask them if they wanted to actually want to go live in those countries. Like, do you really want to go live in Russia or China or North Korea? Uh, that one, they usually won't answer that one. But uh, Russia is interesting, nope. though. There's a lot of white supremacists that for years, even long before this, were fans of Russia. There was a white supremacist that is from Texas that's been on my radar for a very long time. Neo-Nazi guy. And he went to Russia all the time. Louis Beam. Hmm? Louis Beam? No, no. I I can't remember his name right offhand. Because Beam went to Russia in 2014, and that's an interesting one, too. He's got a whole, like, article that he wrote about it at one point. I'll send it to you. It's like... Holy shit. Wow. That's a little frightening. Yeah. But I think what it is, is like a lot of these guys, if you ask anyone from like the New York Young Republicans and that group of fascists to like the radical traditionalist Catholics to kind of other groups that are kind of within this realm, it's not that they want to go live in Russia or go live in China. They want authoritarian government here. Yeah. Like that's what they really want. That's why you've seen this kind of attraction to Putin is because he kind of they perceive him as running Russia the way they want. I I agree. And we, we talked about this a little bit with David Nywert, who has studied some of the you know far right attacks in, in Russia and how that movement grew there. And one thing he pointed out is 
a lot of what we're seeing on the attacks on the LGBTQ community here in the U.S. really mirrors what was happening in Russia about 10 years ago, that they're they're copying a lot of the same tactics and they want the same goals where they can ban trans ideology, gay marriage, just anything that they can take away. They 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 want to and they see a playbook there. One of the points that I've tried to make often, you know, both in the newsletter or both in posting on social media is the importance of understanding the United States far right authoritarian movement is connected to a much larger transnational authoritarian movement. Right. And that while various U.S. groups and, and movements have an impact internationally, the most recent example is the U.S. Christian right in the anti-abortion movement's activities in Africa, pushing anti-abortion legislation and then also legislation in Africa criminalizing the LGBTIQ community. I think while there are examples of that, it's important to understand that the far-right authoritarian movement in the U.S. also responds and learns from those movements in other countries and other parts of the world. Yes, definitely. And so I think, especially with the recent weaponization of the term gender ideology, which is a term that the far-right and right-wing media really started using in the United States within the past year or so. It was present in certain parts of right-wing media, in certain parts of the far-right prior to that, but I think you've seen an uptick in it to the point where presidential candidates are using the term Republican presidential candidates. And I think it is much more prevalent kind of in right-wing media to the point where I think folks that might not necessarily follow these movements might be aware of that term now than they probably weren't aware of it a year ago. Right. Because that term gets tossed around every time that they've done a media appearance, every time these people have talked to anybody on any side of it, they use the phrases. They're very good at getting their catchphrases out over and over and over again to the point where they do actually hit the mainstream. So, you know, you look at a guy like Chris Rufo who took a term like, you know, CRT, which didn't mean anything close to what he made it mean just by repetitive media appearances and shooting the words out there until everybody had this idea that was completely different than the original concept, which was, you know, a legal concept here where now it's the overarching term for everything that they think is wrong with this country. You talk about the the international aspect of all of this. And something that we talk about here is how much content matters, whether it's the catchphrase or getting everyone to be anti-CRT or anti-woke or talking about gender ideology. They're very good at weaponizing terms. They're very good at amplifying each other's talking points, which is we saw it in, in 2016, 2017 with RT and various Russian outlets sort of uh, amplifying these far-right voices in the U.S., and it made them seem bigger and more important than they really were, and then more people are talking about it, and it grows the conversation. But I think now we see that with with more and more far-right groups, especially in Europe or Brazil, where they have internalized terms like the deep state, the the gender ideology. We talk about the the riots in France recently, and and it's the anti-immigration talking points are shared, whether you're in France or Germany or the U.S. So even if these people aren't necessarily getting together and and having a a big meeting or big group uh, come together and, and profess their, you know, shared beliefs and love for each other, they are helping one another. Right. And specifically when it comes to gender ideology, that was a term that really has its roots and genesis within the Vatican in the 1980s and the response to the growing calls for protections for women's rights and the feminist movement then. And it really became a term, a weaponized term in Europe after the Istanbul Convention, which is a a UN convention around the rights of of women and gender equality. And then you saw it also be really highly weaponized in, in South America, particularly in places like Brazil, where you saw gender ideology 
partnered with terms like children's rights and protection of the family, right? And so this is a few years ago. And as the right in America shifted their focus to really targeting the LGBTIQ community and the trans community in, in particular, you saw this adoption of the rhetoric that was used in in Europe and South America by a lot of these actors because they watch each other and they learn each other, learn from each other. Right. You know, I've seen that happen also within kind of white supremacist, neo-fascist spaces where the American white supremacists and neo-fascist movements, they learn, especially from their their European counterparts and the success that those groups have had over there. And I think also another kind of interesting example of this is how QAnon has spread. QAnon, when we talk about it, is kind of broad, kind of the idea of the broad conspiracy, right? Not the specifics right. of it, but the broad far-right conspiracy theory about elites and everything else that goes on with that. Versions of that, of QAnon, have spread to places like Japan and Germany, and they have become their own versions of it like their own incarnations of it japan the japan version looks very different than the the QAnon in uh, the american version there's some i think some great people that have done a lot of research into kind of what QAnon looks like in japan within that far-right context they could speak to it more uh, better than i could but within the german context i've actually had conversations with people folks from germany that study the far right in germany and it's interesting how, I don't know if y'all remember, a while back there was that attempted coup in Germany. Uh, right, right, actors. right. I remember this, yeah. And a lot of the people involved with that, there was connections to the kind of German version of QAnon. That was one of the animating forces behind that far-right attempted coup there. So, yeah, I think it's important to understand just how connected, like, far-right movements are and how much they kind of learn and adapt from each other, especially for folks that want to figure out ways to counter the far-right movement in the U.S. Like if if you're someone that's an activist or what have you, that you're really kind of trying to think through ways about how do you counter these movements and how do you, what's the most effective way to push back against kind of these far-right authoritarian movements in America. Right. I think it's helpful to look to how they've been countered in other places. There's been um, some really great examples of feminist movements, progressive movements, movements on the left in places within Europe and South America that have had success at pushing back against those movements. And I, I think it would be helpful for more Americans on the left within the progressive movement to learn from those examples, reach out to the, those activists because they're pushing back against the same kind of forces that right. the folks here are trying to push back against. Can you give us one example of like a group that you think has done some pretty good work in terms of pushing back and like what exactly does pushing back look like? We all tend to define that one a little differently sometimes, but who's done a good job? Can we get like a case study, I guess, is my question of. Yeah, because I think I think a lot of people think they're helping or feel like, oh, well, if these people are engaging with me then that means they're mad and that means that I'm, you know, really pushing back and causing them trouble. And I'm sure, as you know, a lot of times they want that engagement. They want you to Mm -hmm. say certain things and to boost their profile and up them in the algorithm. And so pushing back is, is not always straightforward. Right. Right. And I can kind of, I'll give a couple of examples and then kind of frame it within kind of what I think is the most successful kind of version of this in, in a American context. Okay. So for folks that are interested, I would say there's a few groups in South America that I would look to as examples of those organizations that have pushed back against far right authoritarian movements, particularly movements that have weaponized ideas like gender ideology and children's rights and protecting the family. So Sexual Policy Watch, Promo Sex, and Digestia. I think those three groups, and there's many others that have done this kind of work in places like Brazil and Colombia, 
I think are, are definite examples of groups that people should look to as far as what kind of strategies they've used and how they have been successful and kind of what lessons they've learned. Right. I think to also bring that back to an American context, and this is related to kind of how those groups have been successful. I think there are some models that can be used here in American context. So when you look at the anti-abortion movement, right, and which has been highly successful. Oh, yeah. But it was also has been a movement that has been patient and relentless over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. And they have achieved some of their goals, but there's a lot of infighting within that group, too. So I think one of the models for how to push back against the anti-abortion movement that has seen a lot of successes has been to frame the pushback around the idea of reproductive justice, right? Not just being pro-choice or pro-abortion, right? But framing your opposition to the anti-abortion movement within the framing of the reproductive justice. And what that framing does is it places the right to abortion and the right to reproductive health care within a much larger context. And so when you are using that framing as a grassroots activist and you're talking to people, right, and you're organizing to push back against this, you can tell people that this isn't just about whether or not somebody can have an abortion at six weeks or 14 weeks or 20 weeks. This is also about the entire scope of reproductive and sexual health care, whether or not you want to choose to use birth control in whatever manner you want, whether or not you want to choose to use the various types of fertility care, in vitro fertilization, whether or not you want to choose adoption or uh, surrogacy to understand that the anti-abortion movement and the kind of broader movement behind it is opposed to almost all of those ideas, right? And so when you frame your opposition to these far-right kind of extremist ideologies around a much more holistic approach, I think that can make it more successful because people kind of get a broader understanding of, okay, this isn't just about abortion, right? This is about how and when I want to choose to have a family. Right. And I think those have been highly successful. Framing it as a fundamental human right rather than something that can be culture ward. And and telling individual stories. I mean, we've seen a lot more of those since since Roe was overturned. But yeah, the, the individual pain really does seem to resonate with people. And there's unfortunately a lot more of it out there. Right. And I think Indeed. you do see even electoral successes around this when you look at the anti-abortion movements really horrible track record when it comes to putting things like personhood in the ballot. There's been, I think, four or five states over the last 20 years that have put ballot initiatives to for constitutional amendments to enshrine the idea of personhood, right? That right. a fetus automatically given the rights of uh, an individual from conception. And those ballot initiatives have failed spectacularly in places like Colorado, which are relatively purple to blue, but also in really deep red places like Mississippi, they've failed there too. So let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about a group that kind of dovetails with some of that, but seems to have a bigger agenda as well about what they are shooting for at this point. Let's talk a little bit about Moms for Liberty. And a lot of your recent research has focused on this group and what put them on your radar? What made you see that? Well, I think initially what really put them on my radar was when the Southern Poverty Law Center had designated them as an anti-government group as part of their kind of annual list of of hate groups and anti-government groups. And they've done a significant amount of research about, you know, their connections to um, various either extremist groups or far-right extremist kind of ideologies. And then additional reporting on their connections to far-right groups. It became clear to me that they were an important group to track and understand 
because of a few different reasons. I think one, because of just how successful they've been at establishing new groups around the country. Right. Right. So they've brought in a lot of folks. And so that gives you an opportunity to really have an understanding of how this group operates within kind of different parts of the country that have different kind of political cultures and dynamics. But I also think that this group is important to understand as kind of a vector for radicalization, because after spending a lot of time kind of studying this group and looking at how who its members are and how they interact, I think members for Moms for Liberty, the rank and file, aren't necessarily far-right extremists. Right. But I think the group has attracted a lot of people with far-right extremist ideologies, a lot of people that were radicalized in the past few years during COVID. Um, There's a lot of kind of anti-vax, anti-mask, former anti-mask activists within the group. But there's also uh, a lot of really troubling connections to far-right extremist groups like the Proud Boys. And at the same time, there's a lot of connections to kind of right-wing organizations that have been trying to push these culture war issues on a national level that are also connected to it. Right, right. I thought it was important a group to look at and kind of analyze because there are so many connections between the group and kind of the broader ecosystem of the far right. And so that's really why I started to dig into them to show not just the connections, but also kind of how complex the far right movement in America is and how there's so many different elements of it that people might not be aware of and how they're connected. So, yeah, that's really kind of why I started digging into this group and doing the kind of investigative project that I'm working on now. So I think you're right. And I agree with you when you you say that a lot of the rank and file are not necessarily far right extremists, but they're if you look at the memes, if you look at the messaging, if you look at who's speaking at these events, it seems like the members are certainly being fed those far right talking points, perhaps from a, a more sanitized image of you know moms who just care about their kids and want to ensure that they have the right kind of upbringing and all this. So would it be fair to call it kind of a gateway extremist organization. It's a way of of pulling the normies in. Is that some of what you're seeing here? I mean, perhaps. I mean, I'm not ready yet to make any kind of definitive kind of conclusion or statement kind of along that lines yet. I will say, you know, I do see a lot of similarities between Moms for Liberty and, for example, the Tea Party movement. I think you see a lot of the same types of people that you saw in the Tea Party movement. I think it also illustrates something that if you've studied the far right movement for or kind of right wing American politics, that something that you already know, but the general population might not understand, like how important women are to this movement. White women really kind of make up the backbone of the organizing of right wing and far right politics. If you look at who kind of the leaders are and who the organizers are, all going all the way back to the Tea Party and kind of a lot of these movements, it's a lot of the same kind of people. But to kind of your point of radicalization, I think when you look at this group, you see when you look at the leaders of, of the individual groups, these individual chapters, you can see such a varied kind of spectrum of where they are kind of within far-right politics and right-wing politics. As I mentioned, there's a lot of folks that were involved in kind of the anti-vax, anti-mask politics during the COVID era. But I've seen a lot of people also involved in kind of promoting other conspiracy theories too, including QAnon. And I think it also probably reflects what you see in other parts of the far-right movement So I think a good example of how you might want to think about this as it relates to kind of the rank and file of the movement is within the Christian right and the rank and file within the pews of fundamentalist Christian and evangelical churches, right? Right. You have a leadership that in some cases is promoting kind of a really far right political ideas or a highly conservative theology within these groups even to the point where you're seeing there's a lot of cases of QAnon coming in and kind of infecting evangelical Christian churches and dividing congregations to a point. Right. So I think 
that might be an effective model at kind of understanding the rank and file activist and their relationship to the leadership and how folks can be radicalized and be affected by the promotion of these various ideas. And I think important thing to note is that these groups, a lot of people like to use the term astroturf, right, as a a way of uh, minimizing these groups and how organic they may be. Now, I wouldn't really necessarily use that term. I don't think it's accurate because I think it doesn't really explain kind of what's really happening. So I think more than one thing can be true. Right? These groups, to an extent, are grassroots groups. So they are local people kind of organizing their own county chapters or, or what have you. And they are working with other local groups. But they are at the same time, when you look at kind of right-wing politics and far-right organizing, it's very top-down. It reflects that authoritarian kind of movement, is in all these groups, they are given basically the kind of same kind of talking points, they're given the same kind of rules of how to operate, right? They are not necessarily acting independent of each other and making their kind of own decisions about kind of what issues they're going to care about and what their position is on those issues. There's a lot of kind of top-down reinforcement of what are our important issues, what are our talking points, et cetera. And so there's there's both things happening, right? And there's a lot of national groups that are involved as well. So it's, I think, to call it AstroTurf is not accurate, but also I would war- warn people against kind of any of these movements against underestimating them and right. not taking them seriously as a, as a movement. Because most of the kind of the actors within kind of the broader context of the far right authoritarian movement, it's a big, sophisticated movement. And they've been highly successful, I think, over the last 10 or so years at achieving many of their goals. And I think one of the keys to, I think, successfully pushing back against these movements is to take them seriously and actually try to understand their strategies and tactics and use that kind of information as a way to push back and look for their weaknesses. And so that's kind of my broad observations about kind of where Moms for Liberty fits within kind of the larger movement. Let me ask you this, because we we talked about this with Sarah Hightower a couple episodes back where she was talking about Moms for Liberty are coming into her rural town in Arkansas and essentially trying to defund the local library. And so they're showing up at, at school board meetings. They're they're essentially trying to keep anyone who opposes them out of the building and so they can kind of run the show. But a lot of these people don't actually live there. They're not part of that particular community. And so to us, it seems like that is some of, uh, maybe you don't call it astroturfing, but it is at least inauthentic because even if if it is a a grassroots organization you're concerned about what's in the public library what's in the school well your kids don't go to this school so that i guess that leads me to the question of for a group like moms for liberty is is this just part of a national strategy to the point that they don't they don't care if it doesn't directly involve them or their kids they feel like attacking everything at this at this local level has to be done for whatever greater good they they think they're accomplishing is that when you start to get into the astroturfing or is this just how they think they're going to win essentially well i think it goes towards one of the most successful strategies that the right has implemented over the past several years has been to focus in on the lower levels, to focus in on the lo- local level. And I think that this has played out in several ways, whether it's been kind of right-wing figures like Steve Bannon really focusing on far-right activists, gaining leadership within local Republican parties at the precinct level, whether it's been anti-abortion activists focusing on uh, city councils and county government to pass anti-abortion ordinances, right? Or now you have Moms for Liberty focusing on school boards, local school boards, and also local libraries, county library trustee boards, 
as a way to restrict access to uh, various types of books. So I think that this fits into kind of a, a larger strategy that the right has been using recently to focus on the local level. And so to answer your question, I think it's both that you have local activists that are working to do this, but you also, I think, have a lot of national level kind of figures that are interested in this and trying to kind of use this as a way to push their agenda as well, right? Right. That's why you see, I think, for an example, in Tennessee, you know, there's a Moms for Liberty groups there and local activists, but you also have figures like Matt Walsh, you know, the right-wing pundit for the Daily Wire also being highly involved in those local school board issues. I think you see kind of both things happening at once. It's both been a successful strategy for them in a lot of ways, but it's, it's also been a way for kind of the national figures and people that are pushing aligned agendas, right? They are ideological aligned. They, I think they view it as an opportunity. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's both things that are happening. And I think a lot of it just depends on the specific circumstances of it, right? So what's happening in Arkansas and those battles around the library, there's been similar efforts in other places mm-hmm. like Oklahoma and Texas. Um, there's been groups that have also tried to like basically defund local libraries. I was told about one right after our episode came out, someone reached out and said that they were familiar with something similar that was happening. Their local chapter of Moms for Liberty was doing the same thing at a local library there. So one can surmise that this obviously, you know, is something they're pushing at all levels of their organization now to try and let's achieve this goal of control of local information sources like this. Right. And it's difficult to say whether it is a coordinated effort right? If this is something being pushed down from kind of the national versus whether it's a replication, kind of a copycat effort. I think kind of a good example of the same dynamic has happened often over the years in state legislatures, right? So there's a lot of these right-wing groups that create these model legislation, whether it's to ban abortion or to restrict access to bathrooms for trans folks or whatever the issue is. There's a lot of groups that create these model bills that get spread around through various networks to state lawmakers, whether it's the State Policy Center, the Family Policy Alliance, um, the Pro-Family Legislative Network. Um, And so there are networks that are probably coordinating to some degree, but there's Also, a lot of lawmakers that will, once they see something successful in one state legislature, they'll try to replicate it themselves. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're kind of coordinating from a top down. It's just kind of a replication of the strategy and learning from, okay, that lawmaker did that in that state it worked. I'm just going to take his legislation and basically copy it over here. So it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I, I can imagine that Moms for Liberty would probably be pushing out kind of national level strategies to their groups. But you could also see groups saying, okay, this worked over here. Let's try it over here. Right. So, yeah. So this next one's kind of a two-parter. What would you say you're probably most worried about when it comes to the future of this country, of this field? What, What do you see on the radar that's really got you worried? I think the thing that I have been most worried about for a while now is the probability that we will face a another incident similar to Oklahoma City. I think it's mm. highly probable that we will see a mass casualty far-right terrorist event within the near future. Now, I don't know when and how it may happen, but I think the question is, if not when. I think when you look at the kind of current political and cultural context that we're in and how much far-right extremist groups have been organizing And also on top of that, how much far-right extremist violence there has been, whether you're talking about white supremacist terrorism, mass shootings in places like El Paso, Texas, and Buffalo, New York, or whether you're talking about far-right 
terrorist agitation and violence in places like Portland or Los Angeles. So much of kind of the current kind of political culture reminds me of of what was happening in the early to mid-1990s when you had an ascendant white supremacist neo-Nazi movement. At that point, it was in the Pacific Northwest. Well, there's right. still a lot of that activity going on in the Pacific Northwest, but I think you'll see uh, there's so much of that activity going on right now in the Northeast. Um, and you see a lot of the same. Then it, it was the militia movement yeah. and all these yeah. far-right movements. And I think groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers have kind of supplanted the kind of militia movement within that context. You also see a lot of this kind of activity on the border. There's been a lot of this border vigilanteism going on on the U.S.-Mexico border. So all of these things happening and combined with you know, the amount of how much conspiracy theories have infected, not just these movements, but just how much you can hear people talk about these crazy conspiracy theories kind of in everyday life. I don't know where you live or your listeners live, but kind of where I live in Texas, I've heard conspiracy theories come up. People talk about it in in the gro- in line of the grocery store, yeah, right, yeah. I think it's permeated kind of everyday society more than I would have expected, and so I think all of these kind of elements come together to have me very concerned about what I I think is the high probability of a far right extremist mass casualty event sometime in the in the near future. Right. Wow. Yeah. I wish I wasn't convinced that you were right. I wish that, you know, that was something I could say, oh yeah, no, you're wrong. No way. But yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. There's been a lot of that kind of chatter lately and the groups that are pushing it are getting more and more extreme as they do. And yeah, I think you're right. It's a matter of time. At some point this is going to happen. And I hate saying that. And what it may look like may be vastly different than kind of what we may imagine, right? Right. It could look like something similar to Oklahoma City, like an attack on a government building or or what have you. Or it could be something more akin to January 6th, where it's a a takeover of a government institution, right. which is kind of in effect, you know, the coup we talked about in Germany earlier, that was kind of the strategy there. They were going to take over the Reichstag and basically the plan was to execute judges and political officials and so it could look something like that or it could look like something completely different um i think the only thing i'm sure about is that there's a high likelihood of that far-right extremist terrorist mass casualty event will happen but what it may look like i think it could look like anything right so part two What what are you optimistic about or what gives you hope that things are going to get better? Well, <laughs> I think what gives me the most hope is, you know, over the past, I don't know, 10 to 15 years that I've been a journalist and, and a, a researcher and involved in covering these movements. I've also gotten to know a lot of folks within kind of different parts of progressive activism whether it's be, you know, folks within the reproductive justice movement or folks within the racial justice movement or other associated movements. And I think what gives me kind of the most hope is the dedication that I've seen from folks within the progressive movement and kind of the broader left at pushing back against far-right authoritarianism and the dedication that so many of these folks have at really doing a lot of really difficult on the ground organizing and activism that really gives me the most hope is knowing that there's so many people out there doing that really hard and challenging work and i think i think that those folks they have the kind of right ideas and the right models for how to push back against these movements and i think i would really hope that a lot of the institutions, kind of the institutional left, the institutional progressive movement, you know, the people that fund these big organizations. I really hope that over the next few years, 
that they recognize how effective these local grassroots organizers are and how much of an impact they could have if they were given just any amount of support. Right. I think changing the idea around how we fund these movements and how we support these movements, I think, could be the most drastic way that we could affect real change is empowering the people on the ground that are already doing this work to do even more and kind of get out of their way almost and let them do the work. So I think that's that's what gives me the most hope is just knowing kind of how many people are out there on the ground doing this work. And I think if you want an illustration of that, I think look at places around the country in the last few weeks, the last month during Pride Month, how many Pride events did you see that were maybe the target of far-right extremists, uh, whether it's anti-LGBT groups or even white supremacist groups? How many of the people from those communities came out and supported those groups? I think just the other day, there was an event at a local LGBT IQ center. I think it was in Ohio where these neo-fascists right. shows up. And there was only 200 community members that showed up to support that community center and show support for those LGBTIQ youth. Yeah, I think that's what gives me hope is when I see kind of people really stand up and push back in numbers like that. So, I think you're right. I think the, the threat maybe has never been greater, or at least not in living memory has the far-right threat been greater. But it does seem like there are more people willing to confront that and to do something about it as well. So yes, the threat is real, be concerned, but also support the people who are willing to go out in the street and do something about it. Well, thank you, Teddy. We really appreciate your time today. Very enlightening, giving us a lot to think about. Any projects you've got going? Um, I mean, aside from just kind of Following all the nonsense that is happening on the far right in general. I mean, if people are interested, if, if listeners want to find out about my work or support my work, uh, you can subscribe to my Substack, uh, radicalreports.substack.com. There's a free and paid version where I have links to the Moms for Liberty project, and there's ways that can support that too. Yeah. Well, go, go find Radical Reports, support Teddy and the great work that he's doing, and Teddy, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. Problem. Take care. Take Have care. a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ. G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.